Hi, welcome to the Firefly Movement podcast. My name is Alyssa Williamson. The Firefly Movement is a group of licensed professional counselors and marriage and family therapists in the Dallas area. We're here to talk mental health. We occasionally like to talk about the Enneagram and we like to interview people who are making a difference in the world to find out how they got in touch with, started developing and using their unique gifts in the hopes that you'll start using yours. You can nominate people that are lighting up your world at our website, fireflymovement.org. Here's the show. it's Alyssa. I am really excited to introduce our topic for today. We're going to be covering maternal mental health and postpartum depression. My friend Christy During, who is the owner of Sage Counseling here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, went ahead and recorded this episode with me back at the beginning of March before the pandemic started. And we had planned to air it earlier, but we decided that taking some time to specifically just cover issues that people were dealing with as far as adjusting to quarantine and dealing with the anxiety that comes with the pandemic was really important. I think there's no better time for us to dive into this topic, though, than now, in part because we are leading up to Mother's Day, but then also because babies are still being born, women are still becoming mothers, and families are still adjusting to having new members of the family, regardless of what else is going on in the world. This episode is full of really good information if you are a new mom, if you know a new mom, if you are supporting a new mom, this is something for you to listen to and for you to share with those around you. It's a great resource when it comes to just practical tips and then also knowing what's normal and what's not normal and when you should get some extra help. So I hope you guys enjoy. All right. Well, Christy, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you coming on the Firefly Movement podcast. We're here in your really, really cute office. So thanks for having me. Sure. Thanks for being here. Yeah. So let's see. I'm trying to think back to when we first met. We met at a Frisco area mental health professional meetup. And you were so nice because you reached out to me and invited me to go to coffee. And we kind of hit it off. And you've Mm -hmm. been one of my top referrals when it comes to this the stuff that you deal with in your practice well, since thank then you. well yeah. it was a treat to get to know you at, and it's always um, good to get to know other therapists yeah for sure absolutely so. so you specialize in and correct me if I'm wrong and tell me all the things that I'm missing here but you specialize a lot in maternal mental health right yes yeah maternal mental health um I'm EMDR trained and working towards certification, so I do a lot of work with trauma. And then I also do some work with grief. Um, Special populations I work with are motherless daughters. I have a free motherless daughters group that meets once a month. Wow. And then um, survivors of suicide. Wow. So that's kind of my... Those are two really important topics that are not super light. Like you're diving right into some stuff there. How did you choose to work with those populations well they say you know make your mess your message um I so as a mother you know I spent a lot of time through working through my own things and you know having friends who struggled with depression anxiety things like that um but as far as um survivors of suicide my mother committed suicide when I was a teenager and mm-hmm. so that is something that I um is really near and dear to my heart. And then um 
with regard to motherless daughters, that also wow applies. Yeah. So um, those are two things that I can really personally relate to. But then I've also done a lot of work personally with both of those things. And I have studied both of them quite a bit. And so those two populations are something that I just feel like I'm sort of uniquely qualified to yeah absolutely um but as far as maternal mental health goes I think you know a lot of it is just that I know what it's like to be a mom I know that it's can be very hard and I watched my own mother be depressed um I don't I don't know that that started after she had her kiddos but I think that it definitely factored into um her life in general and so just watching that I just have this really special place in my heart for women and what we go through when we become moms and our relationships with our mothers and what it's like when there's not a mom present especially like if you're a new mom and you don't have a mom that's a big adjustment for people so I guess it's just always sort of on my mind in general and then the more I interacted with clients and started to see that this was something that I could really uh, work with them on in a successful way, I decided it was just something I wanted to specialize in. Wow. That's really powerful. I had no idea about that part of your story before. That's why I love doing this podcast is because everyone has a story and you just see, you see the business card and you see the website and you see the work that someone's doing with other people but we don't get to know the -hmm. story behind the message and behind the work that you're doing now. Yeah. uh, Unless you ask, unless you kind of get into that. Yeah. And it's not the kind of thing that like, that I would just go around saying, Oh, this is why I got into this field. You know, like somebody would need to ask me. It's not something that I'm super, but I mean, it makes a lot of sense whenever you hear the story that that's why I would. It's so, it's so important though, because all these things are, are things that people are dealing with. Mm-hmm. And I think that we don't know how to have conversations around them sometimes. And mm-hmm. just uh, the same way that, I mean, I had a friend whose dad died of cancer when she was in college. And her line for people when they would ask about, like, so, you know, where's your dad? What, you know, what's your dad do? Because she was still so young when she lost him. Was, you know, this is more awkward for you than it is for me. Because people mm-hmm. just have this reaction to yeah. loss that... Um, people just don't know what to do with it. And it makes it really hard for people who are survivors of -hmm. people that have died by suicide or have died earlier to survive someone that's passed on in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, It makes it hard for them to be open because people just don't know how to respond sometimes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's funny because I've worked with a lot of women who have lost parents in traumatic ways, you know, not by old age and not by um, even a long illness not that that's not traumatic it's very traumatic but yeah but it's out of order it's like this out of order loss right and so when people ask them like how did your mom or your dad or whoever die they know before they answer that the answer is going to cause a reaction in that person Mm. that's going to make both people uncomfortable right and so a lot of times I think there's this um, urge to sort of temper your answer because you're afraid of the person saying oh my gosh I'm so sorry and that's a normal fine reaction but it is awkward for the person who's answering the question you know like because people do tend to um sort of go they're taken aback and yeah 
you know, so that is one sort of commonality that I think a lot of people who've lost somebody in a really, you know, traumatic and sudden way, maybe, yeah. you know, have. Absolutely. And them, you were so. dealing with that going back to being a teenager. Mm-hmm. So how old were you when you well, lost your so mom? Well, so I was 16 and the issue with my loss was that my mom was a teacher in my high school and she was actually a teacher in my grade. Wow. And so, um, we couldn't tell anybody how she died because at that time it was in the eighties and there was a huge teen suicide problem, much like today. Okay. And they were, you know, the adults in my life were afraid that if the students knew how she died, that it might sort of spark a contagion of that kind of thing. And so we, didn't tell anybody it was not something it was this kind of like well we don't really know what happened it's kind of a fluke thing yeah um so I mean I told you know two or three of my really really good friends at the time but it was you know talk about like mental health being you know you can't discuss it I mean that was really the truth now luckily I mean I was in therapy I went to therapy you know even as a teenager really pretty religiously so and I loved it I'm so glad you had that (laughs) I don't know how else I mean as I being a teenager is hard enough yeah it's so hard yeah and then to throw that on top of that for you to have a really safe place to go because you Mm -hmm. couldn't or you weren't allowed to share yeah that with other people well and you know what's so interesting about it is that I as a teenager really did get a good insight into how crazy grown-ups can be yeah about grief you know like my my first day back at school was like right after because I didn't want to stay at home and kids don't react the way adults think they should react right Mm -hmm. and I was told like why are you at school why are you not upset and like the principal and the school counselor brought me in and they were like you're you're far too normal today like why are you not it was very inappropriate yeah yes so um so I did really live through and watch and think these people are crazy like they don't understand that that this is just how I feel I just want to be around my friends I just want to be around my friends and be normal for yeah. a few days and then you know mm-hmm. we'll see what happens but um you know there is that big part of being a teenager where you don't want to stand out you don't want to um you don't want people looking at you and thinking oh my gosh this or that happened and so I was just you know walking through everybody's so different but I did really get to see the the reactions of adults and how strange they were and now it's like kind of humorous to think about how they reacted because it's it's sort of just ridiculous. It's I'm glad you guys did humor about yeah. it. Yeah. But um but I do think that that's really hard for teenagers, you know, teenagers who've had a loss because everybody really wants them to feel and be a certain way and we have to just sort of accept that it's different for everybody. Grief is like, you know, I always say grief is like a thumbprint. It's so different for everybody. So, yeah. But anyway, all that to say that, like, you know, my mom's mental health has been on my mind for decades and was even when she was alive. And so I just really, this is somewhere where my heart really belongs is women. And I think because of the way my mom died, I have spent a lot of years in my own life trying to just make sure, check in with myself all the time about my own mental health 
Mm-hmm. And so that's why, you know, when I hear women who are struggling, I, you know, I really understand that. And I, um, I think it's so important. Yeah. You know, and a lot of women will come in because they want to get well and feel good so that they can be the best mom they can be. But really what I hope that they'll see in the end is that they just deserve to feel good. Yeah. You know, it's so easy to lose ourselves in that season of life. Well, and I think that with, you know, it's easy also to say, well, I can, I could go to therapy because it'll be good for my kids. And it is good for your kids when you feel good, but it's okay for you to just feel good. Yeah. You know, it's really sad that we even have to say that. Yeah. And that, but that, that is a conversation that, I mean, people don't, it, we have this, this real block around just being able to be happy as women and moms that Mm -hmm. we can just be happy for ourselves and that's it. Yeah. And that that's good enough. That we deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So all that had to play into you deciding to go into mental health, (laughs) surely. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what's funny. I, um, when I was a little kid, I remember my mom saying, you should be a child psychologist because I wanted to be a nurse. Really? Yeah. And she said, I'll be a child psychologist. And I, you know, it was just something that I think was sort of in the back of my mind. Um, but when I got out of um, high school, I wanted to be a journalist. So I majored in journalism. I have a journalism degree. And I um, went into journal- went into advertising and public relations with my degree and absolutely did not care for it at all. It was not my thing at all. And I had taken this um, huge battery of tests at this place in Dallas, and they had said, you're not going to like this job. You need to go into something like helping people sort of thing, like social work, or um, they had a couple of other ideas for me. And so I went back and looked at that when I was working in public relations and said, okay, I'm going to go to graduate school. But I think, honestly, part of why I chose social work is because... I grew up in a really small town um, until I was about 14, and my mom was a teacher, but she was also, that was back when the teachers did more than just, and I know teachers now do a lot more than just show up and teach, but back then, there were not as many rules about boundaries and things as there are now, Yeah, and she kind of took care of the kids that in town who who So she was kind of a substitute mom to a lot of kids then. And so I think watching her be kind of in spirit a social worker made me want to yeah. do something like that. So I think that's why I got my social work degree um, mm-hmm. as my master's. So that kind of led me into it. And I didn't really picture myself in private practice, to be honest. I just pictured myself doing more like community practice. and. I think most people that go into social work have that more of that vision. Mm-hmm private practice isn't it's more community work yeah as far as what you're you're trained to do counseling for sure yeah but there's a little bit of a larger vision around addressing poverty and addressing Mm -hmm. a lot of social issues Mm -hmm. where lpcs are trained very specifically for the counseling room and that's right kind of it so i love i love the social workers in my life because they do have this systems focus where they look at all the things that are playing into someone having the mental health issues that they do, which mm-hmm. is much larger than just how you're thinking about it. It's, all right, well, what family system are you a part of? And what's your mm-hmm. school like? And what, 
you know, how are, you know, racial or ethnic issues playing into this and yeah, poverty, scarcity, all the things that do make up our lives. Yeah. Well, and I think yeah. that that was part of growing up in a really small town. I w- there was one school and, you know, I sat with kids in class and got to be friends with kids in class who really didn't have much, you know, I mean, the poverty was pretty intense. And so I don't think that, you know, that's one regret I have now is that my kids are not getting those experiences that I had. Like, I, I really think that that's sort of what developed my, my heart as a social worker is being with other people who I was their peer and had, there was, there wasn't a lot that I felt like I could do. I felt bad that I was so lucky. Right. And that, Anyway, so that sort of plays into my, some of the work I do, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So then after you got your social work degree, um, you took a break from, from the field, right? Yeah, so I got my social work degree, and we were trying to have a baby, and that was not going as planned, and I worked for about just under two years, so just long enough to have a little bit of supervision towards my license, but I didn't finish it and then I stayed home for 12 years so I worked for MHMR in the child and adolescent unit um and which is no joke right that's an intense job yeah I loved it I loved it um and it's funny because I do remember the parents kind of giving me like some of the side the side glance like okay you don't have any kids yet how can you do this you know um but you know, I did but my you best were and young and had the energy to yes. deal with all the crazy that goes into child welfare and yeah. HMR. Yeah. That's I mean that's that's a job that very few people are gonna be in for more than a couple of years just because the yeah. secondary trauma you're dealing with is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. I yeah. I really did. I loved it. Um so anyway, then I stayed home for 12 years. I had three kids. I stayed home for 12 years, and I really was not ever planning to go back to work in, in the field. I didn't think I could. I really thought that, you know, there was just no way I would be able to find a job after 12 years. And I Just because um, you've been out of the workforce? Yeah, yeah. That's wow. just kind of what I thought. And I... And then I got to a point where I was like, I've got to do something. Like, my kids were all in school, and I was taking classes at the community college to try to learn how to speak Spanish, and I was still, that was not doing it for me. And I was like, I've got to do something. So I just started looking around, and I got a PRN job at a psych hospital and started back. And, I mean, that was kind of my ticket to get back into the field, which... Yeah. And even then, I wasn't planning to go into private practice, because I loved hospital work. I loved the busyness of hospital work. I loved the clients. Um, and I, there was another PR in there who was much older than me. And she said, you know, you have a hard time getting a job as you get older. It's harder to get people to hire you. But she said, everybody loves an old therapist. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then maybe I will. So then I did. I decided to go my license and oh wow yeah and it was it during that time that you really became interested in working with postpartum and birth trauma and the things that you do a lot of work around now yeah I think you know when I worked on the psych unit we would get new moms and pregnant moms every so often and I was always really interested in what was going on with them and you know it was so interesting to me to hear you know, male doctors describe their mental illness 
and for me to sit and think, okay, that is not all the information. Wow. You know? Yeah. Um, and so I felt like, you know, they were treating them the best they could, but it was not necessarily from a standpoint of like, what's really going on systemically with this person. This is not just, um, Mm -hmm. psychosis. This is not just, you know, we have to really look at the whole big picture. Yeah. So, um, and you know, it's funny because my friends and I all really talked very openly and we still do about all of our struggles as moms. And I think that I just always had it on the brain. Yeah. You know? So, plus, you know, the background with my mom and that kind of thing. So, when I decided to open my practice, it was just a, it was just a group that I kind of clicked with and love working with. And I've got so much, like, empathy and compassion because I've kind of been there in some ways. Um, so, yeah, it's just, yeah. I love it. What did you think the male doctors were missing in that picture? Well, I think some of it is just the whole like you're not sleeping because you you have a baby to take care of and how women will yeah you know the practicality piece was huge like is it practical for this person to be able to leave the hospital and get to a doctor's appointment is it practical for this person to be able to continue to nurse their baby if they're on these certain medications yeah you know have have we even had that conversation with them yeah um is it practical for this person to um go to therapy and and will that work with a baby in tow and who's going to watch their baby and how are they going to get sleep yeah you know so and then we did have some you know occasionally we would get somebody on the unit who was having intrusive thoughts and it was misdiagnosed on the unit as psychosis so you know women it's very common it's not something we want women to ignore or dismiss as something they should have to deal with but it is fairly common for women after they have a baby to have intrusive thoughts Hmm. and it usually involves harm coming to the baby and it's terrifying for them and what's really terrifying is if those intrusive thoughts involve mom doing something to the baby or husband doing something to the baby but if those thoughts are surrounding mom doing something to the baby then mom will often start to question like would I do that? Am I a bad person? What does that mean? Just because the thoughts me? are so scary to even experience. Yes. And is when you're seeing that, in general, is that more along the lines of the obsessive compulsive mm-hmm. types stuff that maybe someone has dealt with previously, but it didn't get pushed to that level? Yep. Or is it brand new? It can be either. Okay. So a lot of women have a history of obsessive type thinking or just really intense anxiety and then it will manifest in intrusive thoughts after the baby comes some women have obsessive thoughts and anxiety before a baby comes and then they don't have any problem so I don't want to scare people yeah um but but in any case it does end up showing up in some women and a lot of times if if the people treating them are not fully educated on it's called pure O. Okay, right. So that's obsessive compulsive. Mm-hmm. There's no compulsion. Mm-hmm. It's just an intrusive thought. Yeah. So, um, but it can be labeled as psychosis. And so I saw that happening. And then, you know, once I got a lot more education about what that is, I started to realize like these women are being misdiagnosed and we need to really 
pay more attention to this because this is going to cause some huge problems. If, if mom's on a psych unit for psychosis, when that's not at all what it is, that's a massive interruption to the family, right? Yeah. Like, especially with a little baby who can't come on the unit. Yeah, so you have babies separated from mom, yeah. which is pretty traumatic yeah. for everyone involved. Yeah. So it is pretty common. I mean, a lot of times it's things like, I'm not afraid I'm going to drop the baby. Um, in fact, I have a book called um, Dropping the Baby and Every Other Scary Thoughts by Karen Kleiman that I love. Wow. Um, and it really does a good job of explaining all of that. But that's one thing that that I want moms to really know. Like, there's nothing wrong with them if they're having those I mean, thoughts. that sounds like the type of book that needs to be in every OBGYN's yes. office. That yes. they can point to. You need to order this on Amazon right now. Yeah. To prepare. Yeah. Well, especially if you have a history of OCD or anxiety, I think that, that so reading something like that can kind of get you prepped for okay, if this happens, here's how I deal with it. You know, it's going to be okay. I'm not going to do these things. Yeah. You know, there's no danger of that. Um, and so, I and there's a big difference between that and psychosis. Somebody with psychosis is not going to be horrified by those thoughts. You know, it presents very, very differently. So, um, I just came to really see that it's a lot more complicated than, you know, maternal mental health can be a lot more complicated than people realize and if we're missing things then we're actually causing you know some real disruptions in people's lives that we don't want to yeah and I can see the cultural factors there too where we have all of this intervention and prep work while mom is pregnant and after the baby is born you're kind of sent home and that's it and I know for me I have a 10 month old and it was just interesting to me now that I am a clinician seeing the process with that where my child's pediatrician is the one that screens me for mm-hmm. postpartum. That's great. And I'm really glad that they do that, but they were pointing out that you don't see anyone for at least six weeks mm-hmm. afterwards unless something really crazy happens. So you're seeing your doctor every week mm-hmm. right before you have this baby. And then she's like, six weeks, see you later. And then everything's fine. That's it. So there's this large window of time where if no one is checking in, if that pediatrician is not really going outside in some ways their scope of practice to make sure mom's okay. I mean, it's totally within treating the family unit is totally within, you know, what I would hope a pediatrician would do. Mm -hmm. But um, it just, I feel like it shouldn't have to be the pediatrician's job. Right. I feel like there should be more support for moms because the rates of this have got to be pretty common. Do you know? Yeah. So it's about one in six women will have some sort of postpartum mental health issue. Yeah. Um, only one in a thousand has postpartum psychosis. So people don't need to be worried about that. That's not something that's at all common. Um, and yeah. So if one in six women deals with this, and you're so right. I mean, I love that your pediatrician is screening you for it because that is who you see the most as a mom right after baby's born. Um, and some doctors do screen for it. I, you know, there are some really great OBGYNs out there who screen for it. It would be really great if there were a little bit more conversation about it before a baby comes so that moms knew, like, the difference between the baby blues and postpartum and that they can call before that six-week mark and ask yeah. for help. Because a lot of times um, women come in and they're like, oh my gosh, I need to see a psychiatrist. I, you know, this or that is happening. And I'm like, Let, let's first try the OB-GYN. Because there's a lot that an OB-GYN can do 
mm-hmm. before we have to go to a psychiatrist. And there's a shortage of psychiatrists exactly. and mental health providers in, I know in Texas for sure, where when I, especially if you're trying to go through your insurance, if you're able, if you have the financial resources to cash pay for psychiatrists, mm-hmm. that's great. You can probably get in pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But if you're having to go through your insurance, you're going to be waiting six weeks or more yeah. to get in most of the time. Yeah. And you don't have that kind of time when you're in a place like that. Exactly. And that's why, you know, I love when OB, when an OBGYN will consider prescribing something while mom waits to get in to see a psychiatrist. Sometimes it's not even necessary for people to see psychiatrists, you yeah. know? So, um, and there's kind of a shortage of people who understand that there are certain psychotropic medications that moms can have while they're nursing or pregnant. And so, like, one of the organizations I volunteer for is Postpartum Support International. And they actually have, like, a free consult line where doctors can call and talk to a reproductive psychiatrist who will say... That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It's free to the doctors that they can just call and say, okay, I've got this mom. This is what she's dealing with. What's the best course of action? And that reproductive psychiatrist will consult and say, here's what they can have. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean... I haven't even heard of a reproductive psychiatrist before. That that's yeah. a, a sub. There's not very set. many. Yeah. Yeah. That's there's awesome. one in South Lake, and um, I think there's one in Frisco, but she doesn't take insurance. So. Okay. Yeah. So it's hard to find that. So, I mean, since we're here, what are some of the things that you wish people would pay attention to or look for when they're making decisions um, right after having a baby, you know, to take care of themselves? Well, I think that one thing that's really important is that they have a team. One of the things that um, moms can do before a baby comes, especially if they have any history of depression, anxiety, or if there's a family history of any of it, is sort of put together a team of people. You know, who's going to bring over food? Who's going to take the baby in the middle of the night so I can get some sleep every once in a while? So that's one thing I, I hope that people can put together for themselves. I know it can be really hard, you know, for a lot of women to have that support Mm -hmm. um but so basically a lot of women don't know the difference between baby blues and something more intense so baby blues is basically when mom's milk comes in the hormones shift and there's about a two-week period where women are more tearful everything you know seems more intense that kind of thing that is different than something much longer term so for example if after that two-week period is over um, mom is still feeling you know I'm a bad mom that's what I hear a lot I'm a bad mom when there's absolutely no evidence of that that's a sign of depression Um, intrusive thoughts you know terrified of this or that happening fear of leaving the house now sometimes we don't leave the house because you know it's flu season and we want to keep the baby safe but if there's like an intense fear of leaving the house you know that's that's different um and then not sleeping not being able to sleep when the baby does sleep um sometimes also like if if there's a history of mental illness or the statistics show that like 60 percent of women who are later diagnosed as bipolar have their first manic episode after they have a baby that's a really high number yeah And so, like, if mom is suddenly like, oh, I'm the best mom in the world, and they're not sleeping, and they have all this energy, and they're doing just so much. 
Which seems like a positive. Right. right? It seems like, I mean, that would be awesome to feel that way, right? But that can be also a sign that there's more going on than than just, you know. So that could be someone being manic. It could, yeah. And how, how long would you expect that manic episode? I know it can vary by a large amount, but how long would you expect them to be feeling that way before that would shift? I don't know. I mean, that's yeah. very dependent on the person. Yeah. It really is. But I will say, like, other signs of, like, postpartum issues might be rage. Rage is a very common symptom. So, you know, postpartum rage can be part of postpartum depression. Um, it can also be part of postpartum, um, you know, anxiety and other things, too. So postpartum rage is something to pay attention to. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I just want moms to hear that that doesn't mean that they're bad people, bad moms. It's just that it's a hard job. I mean, if you think about it, having a baby affects absolutely everything in your life. It affects your body. It affects your relationships. It affects your marriage. It affects your, you know, your sleep. It affects absolutely everything. And it's the biggest, going from no kids to being a mom is like the biggest shift I think that we make. Yeah. In our, you know, that women make. Um, so, it's not something to be brushed off as, oh, well, it's no big deal. Like, it really is hard. And it's okay to, like, admit that it's hard and ask for help. Yeah, absolutely. So. There is, it was really interesting because I heard you present on this at one point. And I think I remember you saying something that I thought was so interesting. And as you're talking about this, it just makes a lot more sense to me. But that people who have adopted babies or even fathers mm-hmm. at times develop postpartum type symptoms yes could you speak to that a little bit yes absolutely so one of the things that's so hard about having a baby or bringing a baby into the home and suddenly becoming a parent is just the massive adjustment I mean you're still even if you didn't deliver a baby right if you're a dad or you're an adoptive parent you're still not getting any sleep you've got the stress of oh my gosh we now have a little person to take care of and provide for um you're still listening to a baby cry. I mean, it's all very, very much yeah. related to caring for the baby. Um, so sometimes dads get really depressed. And with dads, that often shows up as intense irritability, rage, um, isolating, not really wanting much to do with the baby. Yeah. Um, and I can imagine that a lot of dads, maybe especially if they're a compassionate and not a narcissistic person... Would be like, well, I'm not the mom, mm-hmm. so I really shouldn't be paying attention to me right now. It mm-hmm. needs to be all about the baby and all about her, mm-hmm. and me getting help is just selfish at this right. point. Well, Which I, think, I know women deal with that way more, but yeah. I think we need to validate that guys need to take care of themselves. They really and do. And it's hard for them, too. Yes, it is yeah. hard. It is a huge adjustment. And I think a lot of times men feel helpless because they can't nurse the baby, Um And, you know, what I hear a lot of times is, well, from moms is, well, I can get the baby to go down a lot easier, but when he does it, it doesn't go so well. And, you know, I always tell them, okay, he's not going to do it the way you do it. It's okay for him to do it differently. And everybody wins when he figures out what works for him. So, but I also think that sometimes, you know, dads get anxious and babies feel that. Yeah. You know, I remember my daughter, she had colic and she, my husband would come home from work and she would just, I would hand her to him and she would just scream at him. <laughs> and, and it's he hard. Was like, I know. And he was like, 
she hates me. She doesn't like me. I'm like, no, this is just what she's doing. She's just, it's colic. It's not you. But he would take it personally. And then his anxiety would get big, you know, and then she would feed off of that. And so, you know, I think that finding a way to not take the crying personally for dads is really huge. Yeah. And it's huge for us as moms too, but for dads especially. It is, but we have more biological factors that are connecting us to the baby where dad has to just put in Mm -hmm. the time to build that when Mm -hmm. we've had nine months of this little person inside of us and then listening to our voice and all that. Mm -hmm. And you see that on every level when you have a baby where this baby just wants to be with mom a lot of times. And it doesn't mean that dad's not important. Dad's super important. But they have to put time in in order to build that bond with the baby. And Mm -hmm. I think it's easy for them to take it as rejection or that they're not good at it or this is just mom's thing. Right. Well, and then that... Moms desperately need the dad to... To do it, yes, too. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. You're so right. And I think that that also can lead to, this is one thing I hope people kind of watch out for, dad feeling like he can't do it well also lead can lead to dad not doing it, right? Yeah, and then mom is just doing everything. Right. And then that causes problems. It's funny, I'm reading a book right now called All the Rage, and it's all about, like, why is it that in households where both parents are breadwinners and you know earning yeah. money why is it that we come home and women are doing more of the child rearing so interesting yeah it's really good but I, they think it kind of starts with that whole like dad feels helpless feels incompetent to do the things that mom is doing and so and it can kind of snowball from there um so I really do encourage people to you know couples to to both do as much as possible if if you hand your baby over to your husband and he's not, it's not going well, as long as he's not anxious, it's okay. You know, take a walk outside for a minute. Let him see if he can sort of figure it out. Because once he fi- figures it out and feels competent, then he feels empowered. And that just, like, strengthens the bond between yeah. dad and baby. Well, and you think, too, socially, how often... I know for me, I was babysitting starting at age 12. Mm-hmm. For people, yeah. Which now I look at 12-year-olds and I was like, what were these people thinking? Yes. Leaving their babies with, but anyway, um, but it was the 90s and this is what we, we did. We handed yeah. our, our babies off to 12-year-olds and paid them and mm-hmm. that's, um, but you know, we're really socially conditioned to look after children and trusted with children and for so many dads sometimes that's the first time they've held a baby and we need as moms if we're more comfortable with it which is totally it's not for every woman but for a lot for a lot of women they are more comfortable with children Mm -hmm. than some men are or maybe their Mm -hmm. husbands are is we need to allow them to fail a little bit and to not get it right so that they can learn because otherwise that cycle does totally perpetuate itself and that's what we're seeing as far as you know people talking about um the emotional and mental load of motherhood and how mm-hmm. it's just so crushing and part of it is that first of all we we're having a hard time communicating about how much we're actually doing mm-hmm. and how much wear and tear it puts on us and then we're also having a hard time letting husbands or male partners <laughs> fail and take on some of that stuff. Yeah. And they have to they have to make really, really crappy lunches for the kids a few times before they're yes. going to kind of get into a <laughs> rhythm with it. And they have to, you know, get comfortable with the baby. And mm-hmm. 
you know, do the laundry wrong or, you know, if you have all these ideas about it. Well, and the thing is, it's so nice as a parent to have somebody else who's responsible. You need it. (laughs) Yes, you do, especially as they get older and... It, you know, it starts out, I think, as it's a physical demand, and then as they get older, it's more of an emotional demand, and it's nice to have somebody else that the kids can go to or to, to <laughs> agree on the rules with you as you present them to your kids, you know, so I do think that that all kind of starts at the beginning, and and even though dads might not feel super competent doing it, and moms sometimes have a hard time letting go and letting dads do that, that work with baby, I think that it's super helpful. Really. It's helpful. It's helpful for everyone. Yeah, it's and a win for I everybody. can also see, too, with my personality where I can feel like if I just do it and take care of it that I'm helping everyone. Mm-hmm. And the truth is that may not be the case. I might be leaving someone out and making them feel like they're not capable mm-hmm. by just handling stuff. Well, yeah. and I think that, you know, it's easy to sit and watch somebody who's really competent at something do that work. Right? Yeah. But that doesn't mean that that's what needs to happen because it's not a long-term solution. Yeah. You know, and eventually we get kind of burned out. Yeah, for sure. As moms, so. Yeah, and the piece that you're talking about as far as having a team of people around you is so interesting because I was reading articles about how self-care for moms is just often another trap or it's another thing that we're not, we don't feel like we're doing well when we really need community care. Mm-hmm. Like we need to be taking care of each other and to have you know have people bring us food and take care of us and I I think that's one area where um I know I was really lucky where people from my church and my even my team at work you know came and saw me and you don't feel so isolated and Mm -hmm. there's food that you're not cooking or preparing and it's it's kind of a special time and I know a lot of women that don't have that yeah yeah yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that not having somebody to hand the baby to in the middle of the night is a, is really hard, you know. Yeah. And I think that that happens sometimes, you know, it happens a lot. Um, and then, you know, sometimes women feel guilty about, you know, well, he he's going to work, you know, if they're on maternity leave. He's going to work tomorrow. I don't want to wake him up. And I totally get that. Sometimes we just need to. It just, you know, it's a... It's one of those decisions. Well, I tell women, too, you're going to work tomorrow, too, even if you're home with kids. Because if you don't think that's work, you go do a desk job and see how much less stressed you are. Right. (laughs) Exactly. You know, kids are, oh, man, it's just so relentless sometimes. And you love it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at least at work you get a lunch break. Yeah, at least you can get coffee or go go to to the the bathroom bathroom. by yourself. Yeah, you don't have have little fingers. No one's sticking their fingers under the door. Let's hope not. Anyway, (laughs) at the office. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. But yeah, self care is. It's one of those things. It's not necessarily you know getting our nails done or hair done. It's like asking for help, texting a friend when we're like having a really hard time, or Mm -hmm. calling mom or mother in law and saying hey, is there any way you can just come sit with this baby so that I can get a nap? Or, you know, yeah. that's, that's self-care in new mom terms, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. So. That's awesome. Well, is there anything else that you think we should cover here? Or things that you've got coming up that you want people to know about? It sounds like you've got these groups going that could be a huge yeah, benefit so to people. I have a motherless daughters group that meets once a month. Um, we actually just scheduled... 
we just scheduled our next one. We schedule our groups at the end of every group. So it just meets once a month. It's free. It's at my office from 1130 to 1230. So people can get in contact with me if they want to know when that is. Okay. Um, because it does change every month. Yeah. Um, so that is something that's open to everybody. And I love it when we get new people in that group. And the only thing with that group is they just need to be adults. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, 17 or 18 is fine, but it's a group yeah. for adult women who've lost their moms to death, not just separated. Estrangement. Yeah, estrangement. That's, that would be a different kind of a group. So, um, yeah, and I love working with that group. Um, so that's kind of what I've got going on. And, you know, if anybody wants to, needs anything from Postpartum Support International, it's um, postpartum.net is where they go. And there's always somebody available to talk or text or email or whatever if they need anything. That's an amazing resource. Yeah. Where can people find you? So they can find me online. Um, I am at sagecounseling-hope.com. Um, and I'm on psychology today, like a lot of other therapists. So, but yeah, I'm in Plano and just here and love what I do. So thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time out of your really busy schedule to do this interview. I think it's going to be a huge benefit to people. I hope it's something that people just share when someone is getting ready to have a baby Mm -hmm. or is Mm -hmm. helping someone who's having a baby and for dads and, you know, everyone involved so that they're better prepared and know where to go for help uh, when they're dealing with the really understandable um, major transition yeah. and the stressors that go with that. Yeah. It's exciting yeah. and it's trying all at the same time. Yeah. So. It's both magic and like just <laughs> turns your world upside down and yeah. so disorienting. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, thanks. Yeah. It's fun. Absolutely. You've been listening to the Firefly Movement Podcast. If you know someone who's bringing light into the world, you can nominate them to be on our show at our website, fireflymovement.org. Also, please like, subscribe, and leave us a review so more people can find us. See you next time.